0: Shalom, welcome to Ash JTF, the program in which we attempt to answer questions from our great JTFers Amchaim ben Pesach from the Jewish Task Force. This program is dedicated to Refuash Lema, complete recovery, for Sharon Mitman, Shlomo ben Sarah and Dorit Bat Sarah, and to Iluy Neshamot, Elevating of the Souls, for Malkabat Meir, Allegra Bat Shlomo, Daniel Nankin, Victor Hazdai, Pesachse, Bendov, Lunita Adler, Shifra Hoffman, Ruven Hoffman, Barry Hoffman, Harabir Kahana, Harab Benjamin Kahana, Tsipora Fegi, Bat Liba, Yosef ben Meir, Robert Mitman, Denis Shore, Helen Friedman, and Charles Zolat. On this week's program, I want to discuss the issue of being practical versus idealistic. Because we Kahanists believe that being idealistic is, in fact, practical. Certainly in the long term. And that's one of the great lessons of Jewish history and it's one of the themes of Judaism. Because today the Jews are so practical, and it's been it's been like that throughout modern Jewish history. Unfortunately, Jews have been conditioned to be practical and not idealistic. And they've paid a very heavy price for it, because the idealistic people are the people that change history, are the people that are truly living a life that's meaningful, and are the people that survive. Whereas the so-called practical people in the end pay a very heavy price for their practicality, for their pragmatism. But let's start off with speaking about the Jews of the Tanakh of the Bible and of the Torah. And then we'll go into a little bit of how this works out in terms of modern Jews and modern Jewish history. Abraham our father was the world's first Jew he was the first one to proclaim that there's only one God who is the God of Israel there were other people who believed before before Abraham who understood that there's only one God, there were, there were righteous gentiles who believed in that but um, the concept of, of the God of Israel and, and the God of Judaism that's something that started with Abraham Avinu, Abraham our father Abraham Avinu was not the practical type, he was completely idealistic and committed to his principles. In fact, when Nimrod told him that he either that he either worships idols or he's going to be thrown into an oven and burned alive in an oven, this this story uh, is in the oral Torah, it's not in the written uh, Torah. But when, when Nimrod told him, you either worship the idols or you're going to be burned alive in an oven, Avraham Avinu refused to worship the idols. And he was thrown into the oven and God, it says that Hashem, God miraculously saved him. Uh, when he had been thrown into the oven, miraculously saved him and he wasn't burned and he survived. It was a a miracle. But Avraham Avinu repeatedly, the whole theme of Avraham Avinu's life is repeatedly going according to his ideals. When Avraham Avinu realized that his nephew Lot had been kidnapped and captured, uh, he went to war with four superpowers in those days, four nations that were superpowers four kings that were that had huge armies and against all odds he won and he won miraculously in the war that, that he waged but it was certainly idealistic he could have been practical he could have said it's hopeless what are you going to do let's do diplomacy let's surrender he could have done all types of things that are practical And and you know the practical jews of today would have told him when Nimrod told him you have to worship idols, or I'm going to throw you in an oven. Obviously, the practical Jews of today would have said, "Worship idols. What's the?" <laughs> he doesn't have a choice. He's got to be realistic. After all, the Supreme, the Israeli Supreme Court's going to ban you if you if you if you uh, tell if you tell the truth, or if you run like Rabbi Kahana. You want to get banned? You got to be practical. You got to be like Itamar Ben Gavir, and you got to be like Bibi Netanyahu, and you've got to be like. Uh, Menachem Begin was and, and when he gave away the whole Sinai and, and you you got to be like like Arik Sharon when he destroyed Gush Katif you got to be practical you can't be idealistic Arik Sharon had to do it because he was going he was facing criminal charges if he didn't do it they they were threatening to to indict him because he was corrupt and to show you how this, how corrupt the system in Israel is they threatened to indict Arik Sharon unless he agreed to destroy 40 flourishing Jewish communities in Gush Katif when he when he agreed to do that, they decided to ignore the fact that he had committed numerous acts of corruption and there was massive evidence against him. But the practical Jews would say, listen, he has no choice. What is he going to do? He's going to get indicted, he's going to go to prison at his age. He was an elderly guy already. Or, come on, he's gonna he was prime minister, he didn't want to lose he didn't want to lose things and go to prison and, and face all these consequences. You've got to be practical. Avraham Avinu um, was someone who went to war with four mighty kings and defeated them. He was someone who refused to bow to idols, even upon, even when being threatened with death. He was someone who, when Hashem told him, Lech lecha, Go to a land that you've never seen before, that you don't know. He didn't even know. He had thousands of followers where he was. He, he had thousands of followers that he had, already, he had built up because he was a very charismatic speaker and leader and teacher and he, he got thousands of people to follow him he had to give all of that up because Hashem said no this is not going to be what I intend for you the thousands of followers that's all very good and nice but you've got to go to a different land, the land it's eventually would be the land of Israel that was what Hashem intended but Hashem didn't even tell him where he's going and Hashem led him to the land of Israel which was very impractical very idealistic but Abraham Avinu always did what Hashem told him to do. And certainly the ultimate thing, the Akedah, when Hashem told him, you got to sacrifice your only son, all the practical Jews would say, wow, He's got to disobey Hashem here. This is crazy. You can't sacrifice your own son. It goes even against the laws that Hashem was telling us all this time. And and you, Avraham, went around preaching to the whole world that you're not supposed to do human sacrifices. Now, all of a sudden, you're going to do this? You're going to look like a hypocrite and a phony and you're going to murder your own son? Uh, well, what type of... what is This is crazy. But Avraham Avinu understood that when Hashem commands you to do something, no matter how, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how much it goes against what you, what you think is right. When Hashem commands you to do something, there's always a good reason. Of course, in the end, Hashem was only testing him and didn't intend for him to sacrifice his own son. But again, Avraham uh, Abraham proved how loyal he was to Hashem and how he was committed to doing the right thing. And And it's symbolic, the story of the Akedah is symbolic of the fact that Jews willingly sacrificed their lives in the name of in the name of not giving up their Judaism in the name of continuing the Jewish faith under all circumstances and if the Jews had not been willing to do that the Jewish people would have disappeared so Avraham's idealism paid off in the end because now we have a chosen people who return to the land of Israel which will lead to the messianic era, which will lead to resurrection of the dead, which will lead to eternal life, which will lead to paradise for good people and punishment for the evil people. In other words, the ultimate good will eventually come from Abraham's idealism. He started this process, but when he did it, every step of the way it did not look practical. The APAC Jews would have told him, no, you can't do this without, without foreign aid from Nimrod. And all the other Jews would have said, no, this is impractical, you're not being realistic. After all, the UN is going to pass resolutions against us. The United States is not going to veto the resolution. What are you talking about? This is crazy. The European Union, they're going to issue a sanction against us. Be practical, be practical. Abraham did what an idealistic Jew does, a Jew with principles. And the same thing is true for all the other great figures of the Bible. It was true for Yitzhak Avinu, for Isaac our father. It was true for Yaakov Avinu, Jacob our father. All idealists. Moshe Rabbeinu was the ultimate example of idealism. He was next in line to become Parot, to become Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the most mighty leader in the in the world. He could have freed the. He could have become Pharaoh. Practical Jews would said, "Be smart." You sit, use your sechel Be smart. What's wrong with you? You'll be Pharaoh, then you can free the Jews. Then you don't have to worry. You free the Jews. You do whatever you want. You'll be, you'll be the king. You'll have all the. You'll have the palace. You'll have an army. Be practical. No. He didn't do it that way. He went and killed the Egyptian that was that was whipping and beating a Hebrew slave. He killed him and buried him in the sand. Very impractical, very idealistic. He had to flee Egypt for 40 years because of that. Very impractical. And all the Jews, of course, would say, look at the consequences, look what look what you did, look what a mess you caused. Oh, you zealots, you always cause us so much problems, so much suris. And the same thing is true with David HaMelech, with King David he always took the idealistic the idealistic road always he could have killed shaul when shaul was chasing him and and pursuing him he could have killed shaul shaul was the first king of uh, of of, uh he was he was shaul was the first king of uh yahudab israel the first king of judah and israel and shaul was jealous of him and hated him and wanted to kill him for and was completely unjustified but David knew that Hashem didn't want his anointed king to be killed. And so David fled for his life, and, and could, he could have ended it very quickly. He could have just killed Shaul, he could have plotted against Shaul, done done things, the other, but Hashem did not want a violent coup. Not from David HaMelech, not from the king who was going to bring us the Mashiach. He didn't want it that way. And it's a long story as to why, but he didn't want that. Even though, uh, all the other Jews were saying, well, it's self-defense, what do you want? He's after you. He's trying to pursue you. He's a pursuer. He's a Rodef. You can do it. And all the Jews that were with him, Yoav, and all the Jews that, that, that were with David HaMelech urged him to kill Shaul. But, the, but but David HaMelech was an idealist. He was an idealist. And he followed what Hashem wanted. He followed the principles. He, he did what the prophets told him to do. When Natan... And other prophets told him what to do. He did exactly what they told him to do. He could have been practical. He said, what are you talking about? I'm a king. I don't need to follow. This is even when he was king. I'm I'm a powerful king. I don't have to listen to what you're saying. Which is what other kings in Israel later on did and what a price we paid. David HaMelech? No. He was an idealist who followed the ideals of Judaism and the principles of Judaism. And I can continue with other uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva and the revolt against Rome, and Rabbi Akiva eventually being being murdered because he was teaching Torah. He was his, he, he was skinned alive by the Romans. May their names and memories be obliterated. May the name of the wicked rot. They skinned him alive just because he was teaching Torah. And and by the way, people did urge him at the time. They said to him, be practical. What are you, what are you doing? Uh, yeah, but no, he said no. We, we we must insist that we're going to continue to learn Torah. We're going to continue. We're going to continue to be Jews, and they're not going to force. They're not going to take this away from us, even if we, even if some of us have to pay with our lives. So that's the history. That's the history and the basis of Judaism, being idealistic, and in modern Jewish history. Was it practical to think we're going to return to the land of Israel after 2,000 years? What people returns to their land after 2,000 years? After being exiled for 2,000 years comes back to the land, which was a a malaria-ridden swampland on the coast, and and, and within Israel it was worse than a desert. There was nothing there, completely desolate and the Jews are going to come in and live there, and the Arabs, of course, surrounding, uh, heavily outnumbered by Arabs surrounding Israel who wanted to exterminate, who wanted to slaughter the Jews. It was impractical, and so even rabbis became practical. The rabbis in Europe told the Jews before the Holocaust not to go to Israel. It's impractical. It's more practical to stay in Poland. It's more practical to stay to stay within Europe. The rabbis and the rabbis all told the Jews not to go to Eretz Yisrael. They told the Jews before the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia not to leave Russia to stay in Russia and the Jews who stayed most of them assimilated and intermarried and, and gave up their Judaism because they were practical. they became communists because it was practical and the Jews in, in, when the Nazis when the Nazis uh, took over in Germany and, and started conquering countries in Europe and the, and the Holocaust started the Jews were practical they listened to the German soldiers. They listened to their Jewish leaders like Kastner and other Judenrat leaders who told them, Hey, if we have no choice, we can't fight against the German army. I come on, the Wehrmacht, we're gonna fight, we're unarmed, we're not trained, Jews haven't fought in thousands of years, we're just men, women and children. We can't what can we do? We gotta be practical, we gotta do what they tell us to do. If they tell us to board the cattle cars going to Auschwitz, we gotta do it. Of course, if the Jews had been impractical and had fought back like the Serbs did, for instance. They would have survived, just like most Serbs survived. The Serbs did pay a heavy price. A lot of Serbs were murdered, but not like the Jews. It wasn't, the, you know, it wasn't the same situation. Most of the Jews who fought with the Serbs, who listened to the Serbs and fought with the Serbs in Yugoslavia, survived. And the Jews who left Europe, the idealistic Jews who left Europe and went to Eretz Yisrael, despite the dangers and despite the difficulties, because they wanted a Jewish homeland and they wanted to leave the anti-Semitism of Europe. Those Jews survived. And now their children and grandchildren and great grandchildren are going to be uh, are going to be there into the Messianic era and eventually eventually will become eventually we'll will have eternal life. When the Messiah comes and when we're gonna eventually we will have eternal life. But they rebuilt the Jewish state and they resurrected Jewish sovereignty and they brought the Jews back to the land of Israel after twenty centuries. They were outnumbered 100 to 1 in the 1948 War of Independence. Is that practical? The whole world told them not to form a Jewish state. The whole world pressured Israel not to to come into existence, said that it's unrealistic, it's crazy, you're going to be pushed into the sea. The Arabs were promising, seven Arab armies attacked this tiny little Jewish state. On the first day the state was created, promising to push the Jews into the sea. But the Jews, impractical people as they were, after the Holocaust refused to give in and fought back against all odds and won. The practical Jews in New York and London and Paris say, oi, 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 what are you doing? That's ridiculous. You can't do this. All the Jews like B'nai B'rith and the American Jewish Congress, the American Jewish Committee, all of whom were against Zionism and creating a Jewish state, by the way. They were practical. The reform and conservative and reconstructionist wings of Jewish assimilationism said we have to be practical, and they're, and they're very practical. Already 80... 80 or 90 years already, their, their temples are already empty mausoleums. They're completely empty. Their children, their grandchildren have all assimilated, intermarried, almost all of them. 90% of them that were in those movements, 90 95% of their children and, and, and grandchildren are not Jewish anymore. They've intermarried, assimilated, they've left the Jewish people. Because that's the practical thing to do. Well, you're going to just be a minority. Come on. So we see from Jewish history the practical way and the idealistic way and what gets results. Rabbi Meir Kahana, Zecher Tzadik V'Kadosh Libracha Hashem Yikom Damo, our great beloved Rabbi, our great leader, was the ultimate idealist. And I remember when we started our campaign to free Soviet Jewry after 70 years of communism in Russia when nobody did anything and we, we said we're going to free the Soviet Jews and everybody said, what are you, what are you crazy? The Soviets and, and the Russians will never let the Russians will never let the Jews out because the Jews are the brains in Russia. The Jews, they were one percent of the Soviet of the population in the Soviet Union, and they were fifty percent of the scientists, the engineers, the doctors, the the professors, the inventors. Fifty percent were Jewish, even only one percent of the population was Jewish. The Jews were the geniuses of Russia. Most of the Russian population was always drunk. And so the Russians are gonna let all they're gonna allow what what was called then the brain drain. They're gonna allow a brain drain? It would be a catastrophe. Russia would collapse without the Jews. There's no way they're gonna allow the Jews to leave. You're never gonna get them out. Be practical, be realistic, it's just not gonna happen. You're gonna fight against the superpower. Gay pressman, Shmova the local news reporter in New York, the self hating Jewish news reporter in New York, who was the dean of the New York journalists and New York Media, said to Rabbi Kahana you're going to fight against the Soviet Union, the JDL? Aren't you like a flea fighting against an elephant? A year later, when the Soviets recalled their ambassador, Soviet-American relations were, 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 were headed down all the way, deteriorating all the way because of JDL's attacks. And the Soviets were losing their most important interest, which was maintaining good relations with the United States at a time when they desperately needed it because their economy was collapsing. When that was happening, And they started to allow the Jews to get, they started to allow Jewish immigration for the first time since the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution. When that started happening in the early 1970s, a year after Gabe Pressman said, Aren't you a flea against an elephant? Rabbi Kahana said to Gabe Pressman, The flea no longer looks so small, and the elephant no longer looks so big. Rabbi Kahana was an idealist. And so he freed two million Soviet Jews because he was an idealist. You think if he was if he was practical he would have been able to do that? You think if we hadn't bombed Soviet diplomatic targets and made the issue a front page issue, a burning issue that nobody could ignore? You think if people continued if, if we had allowed things to continue, the silence, the indifference, the apathy And nobody even paid attention to what was happening with Soviet Jews. If that had continued, do you think two million Soviet Jews would have been freed? They never would have been freed. The same thing would have happened to them as happened to the Jews during the Holocaust. Maybe they wouldn't have been burned and gassed in concentration camps, but they would have been forced to give up their Judaism behind the Iron Curtain and would not have been allowed to leave. Two million Jews would have been lost. But we were impractical and idealists and we believed. We believed that standing for the truth can make a difference and can change things the jews that fought against the british the british to get to get them out of the land of israel there were 100,000 british troops because israel was is the crossroads between africa and asia was the most strategic spot the british did not want to leave under any circumstances and if you didn't get the british out Eventually the Arabs would, over, would, would overrun the whole area because the British were inviting them in to, 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 to do just that and the Jews would never have had a Jewish state. So there was an urgent need to get the British out and create a Jewish state as quickly as possible. When Ha'irgun Hatsfai Ha'leumi, which is Etzel, that was one of the underground groups, and the other group, Lehi, when Etzel and Lehi, the two underground groups, rebelled against the British, there were 100,000 British troops in the land of Israel. There were 1,000 underground fighters in in Etzel and about 100 underground fighters in Lehi, which was a smaller underground group. So the underground fighters who had homemade weapons to fight against the British military that had an empire that controlled half the world at one time or a third of the world at one time, outnumbered 100 to one by British soldiers, waged a war to get the British out. Was that practical? David Ben Gurion said no. By the way, not David Ben Gurion, that traitor, uh, Itamar Ben gavir now compares himself to David Ben Gurion. He did a he did a a, um, a campaign video where he compares himself to David Ben Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, who was a traitor and a, and a an informer, a traitor, a mass murderer, a communist, a Bolshevik, and uh, Itamar Ben Gvir, who was who claimed one time to be a kahanist and has betrayed all the kahanist principles because he's practical. Be practical. Be practical. Uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir now compares himself to David Ben-Gurion. <coughs> the practical Jews live in enclosed Jewish ghettos in two and a half percent of Judean Samaria because they're told by the governments and by others, you're not allowed to leave, you're not allowed to form settlements outside of the two and a half percent. We're going to have to give all of that to the Arabs to have an independent Palestinian state. The hilltop youth are impractical. Quote-unquote. They're the idealists They're on those hilltops saying, no, we don't accept that. We're taking over these hilltops and we're going to stop the creation of a Palestinian state. Is it against the odds? Of course it is. But we've always had to fight against the odds. Way against the odds. Overwhelming odds, always. And the hilltop youth are fighting that battle. JTF is impractical. We support the hilltop youth we support those heroic young jews on those hilltops who live without electricity without w- running water think about think about how how you would uh, want how you would feel if you were living without electricity without running water when it gets very cold when it's very windy when it's a lot of rain living in a one room shack with your with wife and children and raising animals there surrounded by ho- hundreds of thousands of hostile arabs who want to, who want to, who want to kill you who want to murder you and, and your own people, the Israeli government, Israeli army, Israel, Israeli police, are all against you and, and destroy your homes and allow the Arabs to build illegally all around you. And still, despite these overwhelming, impossible odds, you continue and you won't leave. By the way, when the Hilltop Youth started, when the movement started 25 years ago, they were told, oh, this will never last. Come on. You, you, you don't, the government is against you. They're not going to allow it. They're just not going to allow it. You can't do it. 25 years later here we are and there are more of them there than there were before. There are now 30 hilltop communities with 500 Jews living there and and, and it's growing. Despite all the efforts to destroy them it's growing. Baruch Hashem. They keep coming back again and again. They're impractical. They're idealistic. They're like Avraham Avinu. They're like Yitzchak Avinu, Yaakov Avinu, Moshe Rabbeinu, David HaMelech. They're like all of the prophets who, told us in, who prophesied impractical in, in, in things that, that were just considered to be like mere dreams. Like we're going to return to Israel after thousands of years, we're going to return in the end of days. And ten of ye shall chase a thousand of them. And a hundred of ye shall put ten thousand of them to flight. How impractical, how absurd, how ridiculous, impossible. That's what the prophets told us. And everybody, all the practical people said, that's not possible. if you're on the side of the practical people continue to support all the Jewish establishment organizations, everybody else or continue to be apathetic and only think about yourself all the wealthy Jews who only give to causes if they get a plaque or if they're honored or if their name is up in lights or if it's something that benefits them or gives them a good name or reputation in the community that's the only thing they think about We're looking for wealthy Jews and for not wealthy Jews who are not looking for plaques or honors, but are looking for truth and justice and righteousness, and are looking to stand behind Jewish heroes who are sacrificing everything so that we can have a Jewish state and that we won't have a Palestinian, independent Palestinian state that would be suicidal for for the seven million Jews of Israel. If you're on the side of the practical people, jtf isn't for you but if you're on the side of the idealists the real kahanas and the hilltop youth the jews that are fighting the same battle that our forefathers in the tanakh in the bible fought the same battle that the jews fought when they fought to create a jewish state if you're on their side if you're if you're on that side of the issue if you're on the side of the idealists And JTF is the organization to support. The organization, in fact, the only one that's supporting the Hilltop Youth. There are two ways you can support the Hilltop Youth. There are two ways you can support the idealists of our generation. One is online. And what you do online is you go to our Hebrew main page, which is hayamin.org. And the page is in Hebrew, but there is a donate button, a big donate button on top in English. You click on the donate button in English. It's on top. And in several minutes, you can very conveniently donate and help the Jewish idealists of our time. If you want to do it through the regular mail, you can make checks and money orders out to JTF and send it to JTF, P.O. Box 650327, Fresh Meadows, New York, 11365. That's JTF, P.O. Box 650327. Fresh Meadows, <clears throat> New York, 11365. <clears throat> There's no doubt who's going to win in the end between in the arguments between the practical and idealistic Jews. We know from Jewish history that it's the idealists that in the end do win, no matter what the odds. It's the idealists who in the end Changed Jewish history and ensure Jewish survival and so we hope that we can convince more Jews to be on the side of the idealists because in your heart you know we're right and in your guts you know they're nuts now let's go to our questions from our great JTFers let me see if I can get to it first Okay, let's see where we are here, oh, here we are, okay, sorry about the delay here, okay, and the first question is from the great Hidavatsky Noahide, who writes, and I quote, one, the Hebrew word ger is used in the five books of Moses with three distinctly different meanings. Can you explain them with examples from the Torah? Okay, I'll try my best. Ger, there's ger toshav, which, which ger toshav means um, a ben noach, a, a gentile, who is a ben noach, but lives in the land of Israel. And it's a, gent, it's a righteous gentile who observes the seven commandments, sheva mitzvot b'nei noach, the seven commandments um, of the b'nei noach. That's called a, a ger toshav. A gentile living in the land of Israel observing the seven commandments of Bnei Noach. That's one definition of Ger. Then there's Ger Tzedek. Ger Tzedek is a gentile who converts to Judaism. Who adopts the Jewish faith and becomes a Jew. and. you know, there's one. There's a commandment in the Bible, in in the Torah, the 630 commandments. We have a commandment to love our fellow Jews. And, but for the, but for the Gentile who converts to Judaism, there are two commandments. One, they're covered by love our fellow Jews because they become Jew. They're our fellow Jews now. And the second is we're also supposed to love the Ger. We're supposed to love uh, those who convert to Judaism. And so that's a Ger Tzedek. And then we have Ger, the definition of Ger as someone who lives, just any Ger can be any in any country, if you live in a country that's not your own. In other words, like the uh, immigrants who live in other countries, people who are who, who come from another country and immigrate to another country, that's Gerim. That's people who live in another country that is not their own. Now, uh, Hirvatsky asked me for examples of this from the Torah, and there are there are examples. I'll give you just quick examples. One is Malkit Tzedek, who he is a Ger toshab Malkit Tzedek was the king of Shalem, um, which is Jerusalem, which actually is Jerusalem is Jerusalem. And Malkit Tzedek, uh, he was also a Kohen, He was also a high priest, but a righteous a righteous high priest. Um, who believed in who was a, who believed in one God and 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 taught and. And taught the gentiles to believe in one god and he was a ben noach he he was following the laws of noach and he lived in the land of israel so malki tzedek is an example of a ger toshav ger tzedek someone who converts um we have the story of um, it's not in the torah the first five books of moses but it's in the story of it's it's in the story of uh, the bible Um, Ruth I'm just trying to think of someone in the first five books of Moses Ruth, the book of Ruth is in the Bible she certainly was someone who who converted to Judaism Um, there also is an opinion among rabbis that Yitro, Jethro, Yitro who was Moses' father-in-law Moshe Rabbeinu's father-in-law converted there's there's an opinion that he converted some say that he did, some say he didn't but there's an opinion that he converted, so he could also potentially be an example of a Ger Tzedek. Now, Ger, as what we call Zar, in other words, a stranger, just someone who lives in, an immigrant who lives in another land, the ultimate example of that in the Torah, the Hebrews, when they lived in Egypt, they're referred to as Gerim. Uh, they, the, the Hebrews in the Torah are referred to as Gerim, who, who lived in Egypt, which was not their, their land, and that was an example of, of uh, the third definition of Ger. And now, Khervatsky writes, and I quote, too, we supported Faglin because he opposed the treasonous Likud government. By endorsing the Likud, Faglund betrayed JTF. Please explain your recent Hebrew interview with him, unquote. Um, a good question. I, um, you're right, we supported Feiglin when he was against uh, the Likud and when he was saying thing, a lot of things that he was saying were, were good things at one point. Uh, but later he rejoined the Likud and rejoined Netanyahu. And of course, we're, we, we're not going to support someone who's supporting Netanyahu. Um, I did do a recent Hebrew interview with him. Um, no promises now, but I'm hoping we can get subtitles on a portion of that he, the interview that I did with him. Because I think the interview in, was very interesting, the interview that I did with him in Hebrew. It was a long interview. It was like 80 minutes but I don't, I don't think we'll do the whole 80 minutes. I think we'll just do the, the part uh, a part about Hilltop, about the Hilltop Youth. But um, um, it was a really, really good interview. I do interviews, Hidavatsky, with people that I don't agree with and that don't agree with me. If someone has a format and is willing to give me uh, a stage or a microphone to speak before new people and a new audience, I'm going to do it. I don't agree. I don't have to agree with them. Moshe Feiglin has thousands of people who, who listen and come to his podcast and who come to his channel, thousands of people, and his audience is a new audience for the Hilltop Youth. The Hilltop Youth usually don't reach because his, his audience is mostly secular and they're just a completely different group of people from the traditional you know the religious nationalist camp that supports the hilltop youth generally so this is a new a chance to broaden support for the hilltop youth so i saw it as an opportunity for us uh, to reach new people and and he and fagland was very supportive in the interview of the hilltop youth which was my which was my real goal in doing the interview with him so we do interviews with people that we don't agree with sometimes because we want to bring our message to as many people as possible i do interviews with people in the media sometimes certain media media most of the media certainly don't agree with me uh, but we do the interview because we want exposure for our point of view thank you Hidovatsky. and now we go to our good friend angry chinese Kahanes, who writes and i quote over the years once in a while i'll come across some neo-nazi type long-winded page lump page lumping jews and chinese um, saying Chinese are the Jews of the East. Boy, I really look Jewish. Do you notice how a lot of these people look rather gay and high on drugs, unquote? Yes, um, there are a lot of anti-Semites also hate the Chinese. Why, because some of the reasons for hating the Chinese and hating the Jews are the same reasons sometimes, because the Chinese came to America and within one generation their children are already in, in colleges and universities and, and do, ha- having higher scores than white students and certainly higher scores than black and, and, and other non-white students much higher than them and, and, and even higher than the average white student. So there's a lot of jealousy and the Chinese work very hard, they don't speak the language, it completely different language, completely different characters and everything else very hard. And, and the first generation, many of them don't speak English. They come here and they open businesses and they, they don't even speak English and they have a business open and they're successful and they're, you know, they're achieving something. So there's tremendous jealousy there. Um and you know the neo-nazi type of course this is blacks are very jealous of chinese people are very jealous of asians in general for obvious reasons because the blacks always say it's white supremacy white white supremacy well the chinese are not white how come they succeed you know how come black people are here four hundred years they don't even speak english properly they, they, they don't know how to read and write they don't speak english properly i'm talking about most of them most of them are functionally illiterate don't speak english properly don't know how to function in a civilized society are filled with hatred and envy. Chinese people come here, one generation, boom, their children are in college, they're opening stores, they have businesses, they work, their neighborhoods. You don't see Chinese people running around raping and murdering and and burglarizing people's homes and committing crimes. You don't see that. Um... Now neo-Nazi would be a white guy that doesn't like Chinese. There white people who are also jealous. You know, you have the same the same basic jealousy, and of course we know they're jealous of the Jews for, for similar reasons, because the Jews are disciplined and hardworking and well-educated and succeed. And so, especially the types who are high on drugs or gay-looking, high on drugs, in other words, weird people who have a hard time fitting into society, they're the first ones who are attracted to Nazism, because they're filled with this. This anger and this hatred, they want to blame others for their own for their own failures, which they themselves are responsible for. Great points. Thank you, angry Chinese Kahanist. And now we go to our friend Benjamin Yisrael, who writes, and I quote, One, can you give more details about evil things Boris Yeltsin did? Was he also like the Soviet dictators? Was he a communist in disguise? Did he also have an evil foreign policy against Israel in support of Muslim Nazi countries in North Korea? Um... He certainly was evil, and he and he was a com- he he was a communist when it was when it was in his interest to be a communist. He was a communist. When it was in his interest not to be a communist, he said he was not a communist. He is an opportunist, a fr- just a, a fake, like like most of the so like most of the Russian leaders are. Um, he wasn't exactly like the Soviet dictators because the, because the, the Soviet. Uh, in some ways he was and some ways he was but in in many ways he wasn't because the Soviet Soviet structure had collapsed when he took over Um, and it was obvious that communism didn't work he had an evil foreign policy, certainly he was against Israel Russia was against Israel in the 1990s as it always has been and Russia continued to help North Korea with its and, and Iran with their nuclear programs, yes uh that's certainly evil they're helping them build nuclear bombs that that these countries promise to use to to perpetrate a nuclear holocaust and nuclear terrorism against Israel and against other countries in the world I don't think there's anything more evil than that and Yeltsin was part of that as well um, he wasn't as effective because he was a he was a, a, a slobbering drunk falling on his face every minute and a typical Russian alcoholic Um who, who, even when he was meeting leaders and getting off the plane, he was falling all over the place, just completely drunk. Um, so he was completely ineffective. <clears throat> but um, he was, yeah, you know, he wanted he wanted to pursue evil policies. Benjamin also writes now too, discuss the foreign policy of the following presidents in regard to the Cold War, the Soviet Union, and post-Soviet Russia. Nixon. Nixon started the policy of détente which means good relations with the Soviet Union. He went to Moscow and he invited Brezhnev, the Soviet dictator, to the United States when he was president and he was negotiating arms control agreements that were that were bad for the United States where the Soviets signed agreements and then cheated on all the agreements uh, and was giving the Soviets all types of benefits and trade which enabled the Soviet Union to continue to exist uh, longer than it, than it should have. So he, his policies toward the Soviets was were, were, one, were policies of appeasement, the terrible policies, horrible. Ford, Gerald Ford, he was the president after Richard Nixon, for those who don't know. <clears throat> and Gerald Ford uh, continued the Nixon policies together with his, secretary, his very evil Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, who was one of the most evil Jews in history. Um, Ford... Um, continued a policy of detente and, and, and so-called arms control agreements in the Soviet interest and getting the Soviets trade benefits. He continued this policy of helping the Soviets uh, maintain their dictatorship and prevent the collapse of the Soviet empire. Uh, then the peanut farmer, the peanut farmer is Jimmy Carter, of course, and obviously he also continued the same thing, same policies he continued with the Soviets. Reagan, now Reagan did have a tougher policy in some respects because the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan in 1979 and the United States reacted against that invasion and there were other aspects of Soviet policy that created a a rupture in Soviet-American relations in the 1990s when Reagan was president so he was a little bit tougher with them but in the end he also wanted glasnost and he believed in all of this with with Gorbachev and he met with Gorbachev you know wanted to have a good relationship if he had been even tougher if Reagan had really been tough with the Soviets, they would have collapsed even sooner. But um, but he wasn't. But still, he, his policies were a little bit tougher than those of Nixon, Ford, Carter, and the other presidents that preceded him. Bush the father. Uh, Bush the father. Um, well, Bush the father. When he became president, uh, the Soviet Union had already dis- had already collapsed, and there was now Russia. And U- Russia Ukraine and all these other republics that came that were part of the Soviet Empire uh, and Bush had a policy basically of of um, trying to maintain good relations with with Russia and in the 1990s and and and, and a policy that a policy that, uh, w- w- that, that also was harmful by the way I said that Bush when he became president, the Soviet Union had collapsed already. Actually, the Soviet Union collapsed during his presidency. Let me correct myself. They collapsed during his presidency. Because uh, he became president in, in the in beginning of 1989, the Soviet Union collapsed shortly after he became president. And Clinton, Bill Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton's policies toward Russia, again, were policies of appeasement, policies of trying to benefit the Russians and help the Russians and pick up Russian society and um, a country which is hostile to the United States. Why would Bill Clinton do so much to help them and try to benefit them? Him and his evil wife, uh, Hillary Clinton, the beast, Hillary Clinton, uh, they had a policy of, of assisting the, the Russians in a way which really endangered American, American national security. Thank you, Benjamin. And now we go to Ram Sheva Sheva Ephes, who writes a very short question, Baruch Hashem in Hebrew, and I'm going to translate it. And I say Baruch Hashem only because you know, most of our JTFers don't speak Hebrew, so we, we you know we don't want to keep everybody waiting uh, while for the translation. Shalom Chaim, Hatzadik, Mashalom היה לך מוצלח עם תמיר דורתל, איך זה אני בעד Zoom, שהקדוש Okay, רם is asking me about an interview that I did with תמיר uh, with Dortal. רם, אני חושב שאתה La Um, What I just told Ram is that Tamir Tamir Dortal, who does interviews with people on the internet and has thousands of people, thousands of uh, people come and view his interviews, he did an interview with me this week. And I thought it was a successful good interview, it's going to be put up next week, God willing. He's going to hopefully put it up next week, but Ram got, got to hear it in advance. He got to hear the interview in advance, and Ram told me that he thought it was a good interview, and I also think it was a good interview, because again, we, we brought up the hilltop youth, and the, the things that I care about, <laughs> Rabbi Kahana, the hilltop youth, Jewish idealism, the, the themes that we that, that we speak about, we were able to get that across, I think, in the interview. Uh, and now we go to Chicago Jew, who is a friend of ours, who writes, and I quote, you plan on watching the PBS special, The U.S. and the Holocaust, by Ken Burns. Um, no, because I already know, first of all, I know PBS, vicious anti-Semites, leftist, low-life Jew haters, and the Jews who work for them are the biggest Jew haters of them all. Um, And, of of course, this documentary is viciously anti-Semitic. They defend the Nazi pig, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who deliberately helped the Germans murder 6 million Jews by closing the doors to to a Jewish escape from from Nazi Europe, by refusing to bomb the rail lines and the the concentration camps and, and the destroying the Nazi murder machinery, which would have stopped the Holocaust dead in its tracks. He refused to do that, even though he bombed every other target in Germany. He deliberately, consciously worked to enable the Germans as much as possible to murder as many Jews as possible. He and Winston Churchill, the British Nazi, did that. Yes, Winston Churchill, the British Nazi, they deliberately wanted the Jews to be murdered because they didn't want the Jews to come to New York or London, and they just hated Jews. They didn't want the Jews to survive. And that... Instead, in in his documentary, in this documentary that you're referring to, he defends Roosevelt and comes up with all types of unbelievably ridiculous excuses. Anyone who defends Roosevelt is defending the Holocaust, is defending the murder of six million Jews. And also, what are the lessons of the Holocaust? You know, they, The reason they're doing the show is to show the lesson of the Holocaust is we need open borders. You see, they didn't let the Jews in the United States. You see, we need open borders in the United States. We need to let the whole third world flood into the United States because of the Holocaust. <laughs> what does one thing have to do with the other? No, we don't need open borders. PBS should drop dead. Okay, we don't need open borders. And then the next thing they say is they com- and of course the next thing they have to compare the Holocaust to the treatment of blacks in the South uh, and say well look look at how the blacks were treated in the South it's you know so the United States you know was guilty also look how can they compare the treatment of blacks in the South to the murder the burning and gassing and violent brutal slaughter of six million innocent Jewish men women and children how can they compare that to the treatment of blacks in the South if anyone are nazis it's the blacks and it's the blacks in this country barack hussein osama got 97 percent of the black vote and he met with and shook hands with and supports Louis farrakhan who has praised hitler and has said that that the jews deserve the holocaust and deserve another holocaust and obama who was president of this country for twice for two terms and got 97 percent of the black vote almost unanimous black support Obama, the Nazi, supports Farrakhan, the Nazi. I mean, if we're going to talk about Nazis in the United States, and there are white Nazis too, you mash and they they should be hated. But most whites in the United States are not, are not going to do not praise Adolf Hitler, whereas blacks do. Most blacks do support Louis Farrakhan, who praises Adolf Hitler. So if we're going to talk about Nazis, let's talk about the real Nazis. The real serious Nazi threat here. Uh, white Nazis are also bad; they're also a threat, and unfortunately, Donald Trump has supported some of them when they run for public office in this country. But, but the, the but the really the worst Jew haters in America are the blacks. They're the worst Jew haters in America, and that you'd never see on PBS. In fact, <laughs> the opposite; they bl- they 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 turn the Holocaust into another example of how we're supposed to kiss black Tuchus, how we're supposed to support the blacks in America. Thank you Chicago Jew. And now we go to our friend Joe Gutfeld who writes, and I quote, Shalom Chaim, can you believe that it's now been 50 years since the Olympic Israeli Olympic team was slain at the 1972 Olympics? Can you tell me more about the terrorist group that killed them? Also I think it's ironic that last week I asked you about the death of Prince Diana and last week uh, Queen Elizabeth II died. I do believe she had a hand in, ha- in having her killed in Paris. Thanks. Okay. Um, the group that uh, committed the the murder of 11 Israeli athletes at the uh, Olympic Game in Munich in 1972 was Yasser Arafat's Black September organization Black September. Was part of Fatah, which was Arafat's PLO terrorist organization. Arafat, him, Arafat, and Abu Mazen, or Mahmoud Abbas, the current, the current uh, PLO terrorist leader in Ramallah right now, who's being given billions of dollars by the governments of the United States and Israel. He ordered the murder of the eleven Israeli athletes. The current leader of the PLO and of Fatah that gets all the money and the Netanyahu meets with and all the Israeli leaders meet with him and they give him billions of dollars. He's the one who ordered the murder of eleven Israeli athletes at the Olympics in 1972. He was in charge of that operation. Thank you, Joe Gutfeld. And now we go to our friend Naches, who is really a great JTFer. Naches writes and I quote: Shlom Chaim, one, your take on Israel being or at least aspiring for energy independence, alternative energy sources, etc., and on Carlton Heston and the NRA." Unquote. Well, uh, Israel Israel could have been not only energy independent, would have been a net exporter of huge amounts of oil from the Sinai. But Menachem Begin and the Likud surrendered the entire Sinai to Egypt and gave up all the oil fields that Jew, that Jews discovered and Jews developed and Jews built and handed it all over to Egypt and lost tens of billions of dollars in revenue from all the oil and Israel not only would have been a hundred percent energy independent for the next hundred years from all of that oil it would have been exporting millions of barrels of oil uh, and uh, the, the effects on the Israeli economy would have been enormous but Israel decided to surrender all of Sinai for a worthless piece of paper with Egypt what insanity now Egypt gets all of that and now they're they're trying to drill for oil in the Mediterranean and trying here or there (laughs) that's a joke compared to what Israel had in the Sinai and even that they're going to wind up giving away they're already negotiating with Lebanon to give them uh, these Jews are so insane the the Qahannes Jews and the Hilltop Youth and the Jews that we support are the only sane Jews in Israel the other Jews are all nuts they're just crazy now Carlton Heston and the NRA? Well, Carlton Heston was an actor who supported the NRA who was part of the NRA. Am I impressed with that? Not particularly. I'm not The NRA is also an establishment group. I mean, I support the 2nd Amendment and I support the rights of people to, make, to 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 have weapons and 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 but I think the NRA is also an establishment group. I don't think that they're fighting as aggressively as they should. I think they also cave in a lot. And so uh, I'm not impressed with some Hollywood actor who claims to be a Republican or a conservative all of a sudden. Uh, you know, I mean, it's better than, maybe better than being a leftist in Hollywood, but did it really change anything? Um, Nachus now writes, and I quote too, please also discuss these individuals, Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris, of course, is the karate, is the, uh, the famous uh, karate master who does movies and had a television show I think it was a weekly show, if I'm not mistaken. I didn't watch it, but I think it was. I think he had a weekly television show, and prime time, I think it was. And um, he supported. He's an evangelical Christian. He supported Mike Huckabee for president. We also supported Mike Huckabee for president, by the way, in 2008. Uh, so I liked what Chuck what Chuck Norris was doing with Mike Huckabee, but since then, I don't really know much about what he did about what he does other than that. Uh, Benjamin the D- uh, D- Israeli. He Benjamin the D- Israeli was a Jew who a Jewish apostate who, who betrayed the Jewish people by converting by converting outside of the Jewish faith by becoming a Christian uh, in order to... I don't know if it was I don't know if it was because he really wanted to be or because he was because he wanted to get into British politics because at that time you you couldn't hold office you couldn't be in Parliament unless you were a Christian. So, I don't know uh, what his reasoning was, but whatever it was, um, I't uh, I don't think it's something positive uh, what he did because he represents Jews who, who betrayed the Jewish faith, and uh, you know, if, if you see the beginning of my show this week, I'm speaking precisely about Jews just like him, the practical Jews, those are the Jews that end up disappearing and, 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 and leaving the Jewish people completely. Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was president and uh, he also was no great saint. He also pressured Israel and saved Arafat and the PLO in Lebanon and wanted Israel to commit suicide in the beginning of his term but then gave up because he he got angry at the Arabs when they blew up uh, hundreds of marines and murdered hundreds of marines. Hezbollah murdered hundreds of marines in Lebanon. Uh, he pressured israel less than other presidents did most of his term he he, he ignored the middle east he wasn't interested um, but still he wasn't he was not he was not a saint by any by any means um Rayner i think louise rayner i think is the actress i don't know i don't know anything about her i think she's the actress right she was an actress many years ago if i'm not mistaken I, but i don't know anything about her Getty Lee, is that the musician from Canada, the Jewish musician from Canada? Or I don't know, if, yeah, I think he is Jewish, Getty Lee, I think so, but again, I don't know anything about him, Nachas, I'm sorry. Arlo Guthrie, oh he's the Jewish musician, um, Arlo Guthrie, um, Arlo Guthrie is, I think his mother is Jewish, uh, and he's a leftist, and he sings the leftist themes, of the, so. Obviously, uh, obviously, I don't like him. Daniel Mendoza. Uh, Daniel Mendoza. Um, I don't remember who. I, you know, sounds familiar. I don't remember who he is. So I, I just don't remember Nachas. I'm sorry. Thanks and God bless you and all of our great JTFs. Thank you very much, Nachas. Thank you. And now we go to Truth Spreader, another good friend of ours, who writes, and I quote: De Chaim, do you think Hollywood has has become is is has become more woke?" Unquote. Well, first of all, let's obviously it has, but let's let's understand the term woke. Woke is is um, Ebonics. That's black. That's black people who don't know how to speak English use that term. You be woke. You know, And, and, and it, refers to the, it refers to the fact that you have to awaken to the fact that all white people are racist and you have to hate white people and you have to hate American society and you have to pretend that America's been bad to black people, which, by the way, certainly in the past 50 years, America's been very good to black people, spent over backwards to help black people who don't deserve it. But woke means you're supposed to blame whitey and blame America for everything that goes wrong in the black community. And of course Hollywood does that. Obviously, obviously. Thank you, truth spreader. And now we go to our friend Italian Zionist who writes, and I quote, Chaim, please explain the traditional Jewish morning prayer, prayer. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has, not create, who has not created me, a woman. Some women say it is anti-women. Some have ascribed it to very variously to, ta- is it is it tails or fails? I don't even know how to pronounce it. Uh, my, revealing my ignorance here, Italian Zionist. To to uh, Thales, Socrates, or Plato, since the Greeks thanked their God for three things. Uh, By the way, Thales, however I say in English, it's not an English name anyway, so it it really doesn't make a difference. But anyway, they say the Greeks thanked their God for three things, that I was born a human and not a beast, a man and not a woman, a Greek and not a barbarian. This is similar to the Jewish prayer, thanking God for not being a slave, a Gentile, and a woman. Do you think it came from the Greeks, or was it a typical standard in the ancient Mediterranean world, possibly? First of all, things that the Greeks, you know, things that Jews pray for or that are or part of Jewish tradition generally do not come from the Greeks or from the Gentile world. Usually it's the opposite. It's the Jews that have more influence uh, than, than the other way around. So, I mean, let's remember, uh, um, alphabeta, the, the whole Greek alphabet comes originally, was influenced by the Aleph-Bet in the Hebrew alphabet. Hebrew came way before Greek, and and if anything the greeks were influenced heavily by by their interactions with the hebrews so were the romans so was all of europe heavily heavily influenced by by the jews um... the reason why jews pray thank god for not creating me a woman is because women because of pregnancy pregnancy especially now in the modern era it's less so, but especially in ancient times, pregnancy was a trem- there was a tremendous risk of death. It was dangerous to become pregnant. Women willingly did it, of course, but their life was in danger. Many women didn't survive pregnancy. It was very common for women to die to die while, while giving birth in ancient times. And, and even a hundred years ago, even a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, uh, women often died while giving birth. So, so because of the danger uh, of pregnancy men thank god that, they had, that their lives are not that god had, didn't put them in danger uh, that their lives are not being put in danger because because we're supposed to thank god for everything that he does and and so the men are thanking god because of the issue of, only because of the issue of pregnancy because the women very bravely uh, put their lives on the line in order to bring other human beings into the world, and uh, it's something that should, of course, be tremendously admired. Um, Italian Zionist. Uh, then uh, he also writes that the Jews have prayer for not being a slave, a Gentile, and a woman. Okay, women. We already covered the reason why. Uh, slave, obviously, uh, Jews don't want to be slaves. They obviously would want would want to be free. And a, a, and Gentile is only because the Jews have more commandments. Than the Gentiles. Jews thank God that they that they were given six hundred thirteen commandments. The Gentiles only have seven commandments uh, under Jewish law. So the Jews thank God for giving them more commandments to give because that gives them more opportunities to f- to fulfill God's will uh, under the Jewish religion. So Jews thank God that they that they have these extra commandments. Thank you, Italian Zionist. And now we go to. Rowey, who writes, and I quote, in Hebrew, who writes, and I quote, Shalom Chaim, Hayakar, Mashlam Cha, Mahen Hasibot Sheba Yehadut, Haima Kovat Etadat Velo Ha'aba. And, and Rowey writes, what is the reason why the the, the mother determines uh, the religion in Judaism and not the man, and not the, the father? Ki ha'imah? First, I'm answering in Hebrew, and then and then I'll translate. Roi ki ha'imah mashpia al ha yoter aba berov ha mikrim ha'imah im hayeladim yuter yoter aba berov ha berov ha mishpachot as ha hashpa'ah gedola mimena. zo achat ha sibot. Zorak achat hasibot Yesh and uh, what I just said is because the the, the mother influences the children much more than the father the mother is with the children spends much more time with the children in most families, in most cases and so because of that because the mother influences the children much more um, that's one of the reasons why the mother is the one who determines if the children are Jewish or not having a Jewish mother determines that Determines determines the 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 identity of the child not not having a Jewish but having a Jewish father does not. Roey now writes and I quote: Lamein isur lechol basar acharei achilat mutzarei chalav im yesh maachlei chalav she nisharim u'mala b'keva toda. Okay, uh, Roey is asking. Um, why isn't there why isn't it forbidden to eat uh, meat after after eating dairy products if the if the dairy products remain in the stomach an hour or more okay first Hebrew then translate into English because because first let me explain that in 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 Judaism if you eat if you eat meat you have to wait six hours before you can eat dairy but if you eat dairy you don't have to wait six hours some people wait a half hour some people wait an hour some people you can also just rinse your mouth out and after eating dairy and 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 then you can eat meat so it always is saying well why is this because it's more than an hour in the stomach uh... uh first let me answer him in hebrew because the in other words the 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 dairy remains in the stomach more than an hour, so why, you know, the meat is going to be mixed with the dairy in the stomach in the end, so why why not, why isn't there a longer wait? Okay, that's the question. Lephi harambam, ha-basar, lefamim k'sheoklim basar, ze nipka ba-shinayim. Az begelal zeh, lo ochlim mozarei chalav, akhari akhilat basar. כי יש ארבוב בפה אבל כשאוכלים חלב בדרך כלל החלב נמס זה לא זה לא ישאר בפה כמו כמו באסר אז אז אפשר לאכול בשר אחרי מוצרי חלב זה הרמבם לפי רשי בגלל השומן בבשר זה יישאר יותר זמן בפה. הגמ התאם של הבשר זה נישאר בפה יותר יותר זמן. בגלל זה אחרי אכילת בשר לא אוכלים מוצרי חלב. אבל כשאוכלים מוצרי חלב קודם זה לא נשאר בפה. וקחר בזמן לפחות בפופד משמעותי מספיק משמעותי כדי כדי לגרום לאיסור באחילת בשר אחרי אחילת מוצרי חלב אתה צודק שבב בקיבה או בבטן זקן גישער אבל um ma she kore ba beten ze lo ma she khshuv be yadut ma pe ki mashpia al Alha ha mudahut chelanu al ha tudahah chelanu wa ze ma she khshuv lo mamash bifnin bifnin ba ze pakhot Hashuv. ani mudel leha ro'ah and so what i just said was that the that Harambam says that sometimes the meat gets stuck in our teeth when we eat meat and so if we eat dairy after that there's going to be a mixture in the mouth and that's something that's not desirable that the meat and the dairy will be mixed in the mouth we don't want that in Judaism that's Harambam Maimonides Rashi another great commentator another great Jewish commentator another great Jewish sage writes that it's because of the fat in the meat that causes the that causes it to stay in the mouth longer and the taste of the meat stays longer in the mouth so for that reason when we eat meat first we don't want to we don't eat dairy after that but in the case of eating dairy first that's not true the dairy melts more quickly and disappears in the mouth much more quickly and therefore uh, we are permitted to um, to eat meat a half hour or an hour um, after eating dairy, or if we just rinse our mouth after eating dairy. Okay, ani modelcha roei. I thank you, roei. And now we go to Chaim Azulai Efechesh, who writes in Hebrew, and I quote: Shalom Chaim Hayakar veHatzadik, lo socachnu malezman vehi kagati lishmoa mimcha. גם פניתי אליך בוואטסאפ, כולל הודעה קולנית, ולא התייחסת לדבריי. אבל זה כרגע לא העניין. קודם כל, חיים, תרשה לי לך שאני מקבל כל כך הרבה מסרים בוואטסאפ, מכל כך הרבה אנשים, אני לא יודע מיהם, מהם, אני מקבל הודאות כל יום what I just told like because he said that he 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 went to me on whatsapp and I didn't answer him on whatsapp and I said to him I get so many messages on whatsapp from so many dozens of people I don't even look I can't I can't. I'd, I'd be there 24 hours a day if I was if I looked so I don't even check what the messages are okay um, עכשיו, uh, now uh, Chaim writes, and I quote: Birzoni lishol shtei sheelot mesakrenot. Anihevanti shemahalach shehudcha b'kelip haamerikay. Shavateta raav ki kibalta kilo kibalta ochel kasher. imken. מה עשית ואיך הצלחת לשרוד שם לאורך זמן ללא אוכל כשר לקבל? Okay. Um, Chaim asked me, uh, I understand that you that you went on a hunger strike because they didn't give you kosher food and how did you survive all this time uh, on a hunger strike uh, when they weren't giving you food? זה לא Chaim. Um, אני לא... Uh, אני לא אסיתי שפיחת uh, רע. Uh, אני, אבל הרבה פעמים לא קיבלתי אוכל. זה נכון. Uh, אז אני סרדתי כי פה ושם קיבלתי פרות, ירקות, דברים שמותר לאכול, וגם ליפמים מוצרים, כשרים שמותר לאכול. אז uh, כשאקיבלתי, זה意 אני אני. סרדתי דרך מה שקיבלתי אבל זה היה לפמים כן לפמים לא במשך חמש שנים אז כמובן שהייתי חולה ו ולפמים היו היו תקופות שבהן אני אני חשבתי שיש סכנה לחיים שלי בגלל זה אבל um, and what I said is that there were times when I received kosher food, and there were times when I didn't, so I survived when I got what I Po Here and there I was able to get fruits, vegetables, other things that were kosher, and sometimes kosher products and kosher food I did get from time to time. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, but it was... Very very difficult because there were periods when I wasn't getting food. So, you know, spending five years in a situation like that, there were, I did get sick, and there were times when I thought my life would actually be in danger. But I didn't want to eat be, uh, if I wasn't getting kosher food because I wanted them to know that if a Jewish, if you don't give kosher food to a Jewish prisoner, he's not going to eat. Chaim uh, now asked me, and I and I quote, Chaim Betzalel Smotrich Makirotcha veYudeya Miata. Imken esmach ladat mahu hosheva lecha. Benosaf esmach ladat ma tahosheva lav, ke adam uche politikai, behaim ladat ha, huuteria manim itemar bengevir. Todalecha, beshee hemshech shabua mutz And now Chaim asked me, does uh, uh, Betsail Smotrich, who is the head of a political party and, and a member of the Knesset, does he know me? and he wants to know uh, what he if he knows me what he thinks of me and and uh, also what i think of him and do i think he's more right wing than itamar ben gavir uh who can makeroti anachnu afilu mikatvim lifamim um as hu makiroti vehu hu kishanim kotevelav kotev elav hu hu oneli um אני לא יודע מה הוא חושב עליי, הוא לא אמר לי, הוא הודה הודה לי כמה פעמים על דברים שאני שאני אמרתי לו, אבל אני לא יודע מה הוא חושב עליי. אני חושב שהוא אופורטוניסט, אני לא חושב שהוא מנהיג טוב לישראל, הוא ישב בממשלת נתניהו כשהם החריבו המונה ועוד יישובים ביהודה ושומרון, (laughs) who <laughs> What I just told Chaim Azulai is um, that uh, the Smotrich, the Knesset member and the head of the political party called the uh, religious Zionist movement that he does know me, that we that we communicate, we write to each other sometimes. When I write to him, he answers me. We do write to each other. He does know me. I don't know what he thinks of me. He never told me what he thinks of me, but he has thanked me sometimes for some things I've, some of the things I've written to him about. Um, and um, he asked me uh, if, I th- if I think he's more right-wing than Itamar Ben-Gavir, and I answered that I think he's a bad politician and opportunist. I, I write to people that I don't think are a good, a good leaders because I try to influence what's going on. Sometimes even with people that I don't agree with, and I don't hide the fact from them that I don't agree with them. Uh, I'm going to say this in Hebrew to also to Chaim Azulai. Ani lo mastir smotrich uh, I try to influence things when I can even with people i disagree with but anyway uh, i told i also told Chaim Azulai that I think that even though i don't think he's a good a good leader um because he allowed jewish settlements to be destroyed in judean and samaria and continued to sit in the government of netanyahu when that, when that was done um, i think I, I i think that he i think that the itamar ben Gavir though is even worse even worse than him i thank you khaimazulai and i want to thank everybody for another uh, program of sjtf that i very much enjoyed doing and i hope that we're going to uh, be able to change things and have an influence on things, that depends on each one of you. How much you support us, how much you spread the word about us, how much you support us financially, that's all up to you. Because in your heart, you know we're right. And in your guts, you know they're nuts. For JTF, until next week, this is Hayim Ben Pesach. Shalom.